Okay, I guess this is it. Where are we now? Let's take the glasses off so that I can see and then put them on because I can't see. January the 17th. Excuse me. <coughs> 2021, lecture discussion number 127 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Job, and Jude 9, Genesis 2-7, Genesis 3-4, and today we're back at 1 Kings 13. That's pretty much where we left off last week, so today is a continuation. And I don't have a great deal of time to read all of 1 Kings 13, or even the passages that I'm going to bring up. I'm I can pick at it a little bit. So if, you, if you're here for the first time, and why would you be, um, try to find Lecture 126, and then it'll feather together, I think, or hope, or at least I'm proposing such. First Kings 13, in case you missed Lecture 126, is the unnamed prophet. Let me repeat it, unnamed prophet. Immediately you should start to ask questions. It's King Jeroboam of the northern kingdom, uh, Israel, uh, which has been divided from the southern kingdom, Judah, the Davidic line. And so we have this division now, this partitioning of Israel, the nation of Israel, into Israel and into Judah, into David and non-David. And of course, you know the Messiah must come out of the Davidic line. There's this uh, element of King Jeroboam who has uh, decides to build an altar which becomes the split altar, uh, the sign of the split altar, and then the sign of the poured out ashes. And included in 1 Kings 13 is this incredible prophecy of Josiah, who is to come in 300 years. And Jeroboam has a withered hand, a withered arm, hand arm withered that he stretches out uh, and then he's trying to pull it back and there's restoration and the new Ta- new testament complement of of first kings 13 is mark 3 1 through 6 and zechariah uh, let me put those on the board really fast mark 3 1 through 6 and zechariah 11 17 so i can put first kings 13 with these three and make them a unit, they all have this withered arm, withered hand symbol in them, actual event that has become a biblical symbol. Let me say this, Jeroboam's arm and hand actually withered. The the Pharisee in Mark 3 had a hand that actually withered. The Antichrist, the idol, can't put that down enough, not idol as in lazy like the, the like pastor's. Because we all know that pastors just do it for the money. Never mind, that's a joke in the pastor business. Uh, but it's idol, like pagan idol, shepherd. Uh, he also has, as opposed to the good shepherd, right? Christ is the good shepherd. He has a withered arm. So you know that this is something significant, and it has to all be placed together. There's the two golden calves of Jeroboam. Now, not one golden calf. That's First Kings 12.32. He makes two golden calves. Uh, and, of course, he's referring back to Exodus 32. And also the law of the altar is in play here. That's Exodus 20, 22 through 26. Uh, let me put Exodus uh, 32 on the board uh, and 1 Kings 12. You go into 1 Kings 12 and you find uh, the two golden calves and that tells you to go back to uh, 12.32 to be specific. That will tell you to go back to Exodus 32. The law of the altar is Exodus 20, so I have an altar um, I have an altar in First Kings, whoops, I forgot 13. I have an altar in First Kings 13, and I'm going to go find the, the altar, or the law of the altar in Exodus 20, 22 through 26. That's the altar that has no steps. That's the altar that can't be touched uh, by a tool. That's the altar that can be made out of earth or by stone. That's an altar that you don't get on, on the altar lest your nakedness be exposed. That, of course, is the nakedness of Adam, isn't it? Genesis 3, 7. It's, again... Uh, anything that if you go on to this altar exposed in nakedness, that is a profanation. That is a blasphemous behavior, as is the tools uh, and making it out of anything but earth or stone. 
And hopefully that was an adequate summation. That's where we were last week. I did that as fast as I could because otherwise I'll run out of time again as I always do. And hopefully you who have listened to 126, remember all of that, you've begun to formulate the abundance of questions that accumulate from all of that material. And obviously, let's just knock out a couple of them. Why is the unnamed prophet an unnamed prophet? Why doesn't God name him? He does not name him. He could have, does he, let's just ask really dumb questions. Does God know the name of the unnamed prophet? He withholds it. I'm truly nice. It's because I'm trying to get rid of all my teeth. Why is the unnamed prophet unnamed? Why did God send the unnamed prophet to Jeroboam who has built an altar and he is performing a sacrificial ritual? And God sends this one man, doesn't send the army of Judah, sends one man from Judah to go and impact Jeroboam's ritual that he is, he is obviously very intent on doing this. I might add that Jeroboam was the officiant of this sacramental observance. This is a religious act that Jeroboam is doing in 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings 12, 1 Kings 13. It's likely that King Jeroboam was performing it not just as the king, but as the high priest. So I have a high priest-king combination in a religious event. And God sends this unnamed prophet. As you know, and those of you who know, and I hope you know, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on Yom Kippur to atone, the Day of Atonement, to atone for the, the sins of the nation, Leviticus 16.12. None but the high priest could bring the sweet incense inside the veil before the mercy seat. When the incense comes in, the sweet incense, God appears inside the Holy of Holies. The only one that can be in there is the high priest. If there's anything else there, if anyone else tries to go in, they will die. If the high priest goes out and goes in there without the sweet incense, he will die. And again, the, the history of this is that they would tie a rope around his foot in case he died, and they'd drag him out of there, right? And, um, and, and he does this on this one day. And it's the tenth day of the seventh month of the religious calendar, Leviticus 16.17. The king of Israel can't go into the Holy of Holies. So here I have Jeroboam now. He's officiating, not on this day. We'll get to that in a second. But the king of Israel could not do it. The king would certainly die if he did. Surely die. If the king goes in there, he will surely die. Where am I now in the Bible? I'm at the two trees. Genesis. Thus the king could not be the high priest. Kings are Davidic, high priests are Aaronic. Kings come through the line of David, the high priest comes through the line of Aaron. And notice the Genesis 2.16 element, again, just saying, that's the two trees. I, I really fast, I, I'm going to throw this in here. We have this N501Y, uh, or is it Y... I'm pretty sure it is in, yeah, I'm right, N501Y. And you also see it as B-17 or 117, I think there's three ones, 1117. This is the lineage I'm talking about. Did I, have a, I forgot the E in there. That's the lineage of the variant. So the, the lineage of this particular part, no, it's 117, B-117. Let me, let me fix it because I hate to put out stupid stuff. Can't avoid it. B117 is the lineage. Obviously, I wasn't planning to do this, and now I'm doing it and I'm having to remember it. It's called N5017, or N501Y, sorry, because it's positioned, what they're able to do, let me back up completely, they're able to look at a particle of the virus, this is the technology that's out there, and I'm fascinated by microbiological inputs and, and 
and information, as you know, because I'm expecting the Luke 17 sign of Lot and sign of Noah in my lifetime. I certainly hope I get to see it. That's my retirement plan. But in any event, the microbiology community, the virology community, the vaccinology people, they can map out a particle of this virus. And they have decided that on the 501 position of the spike protein, you're all familiar with the spike protein. I have the virus and it has all of these spikes. Okay, they can take one spike and they map it out and they find out how many positions are in it uh, genetically, essentially. And they figure out that on the 501 position of this particular spike protein, they found a mutation, not necessarily a mutation, and not a, a, most of the time they are deletions or additions. This happens to be a change. Uh, it went from the N uh, amino acid to the Y amino acid. So there's the N and there's the Y. So it went from N to Y on the 501 position of a piece of this spike. Does that make any sense to anybody? That's what they're able to do. See, the, the, in other words, the aspergine, which is the N amino acid became replaced with a tyrosine. That makes no sense to you either. Don't worry. But that's what's happening, and they were able to figure that out, and that means that we have an N to a Y. Now, what does this N to the Y do? Well, they didn't know for sure, but they thought that it would make it more efficient. The virus would become more efficient and more rapid in its transmission, transmissibility. And so they took this particular... Uh, variant and they put it in mice and they found out that happens to be the case. The mice became more infected and easily, in fact, more easily infected. So there's a rapidity and there's a transmissibility in this particular change. The receptor binding domain of the, of the protein, it happens to be in position 501 and it made that binding domain of that receptor more likely to bind to an ACE2 receptor in your mouth or your nose, okay? So what does all that mean? Well, it's, it's all over the United Kingdom and South Africa right now, which means it's going to come to the United States. Now, there's no impact with regard to vaccine efficacy, so they're hoping that the vaccines seem, they seem not to be impacted by this, and there does not seem to be any increase in severity. But if I have, if I have transmissibility that is more, uh, have a higher affinity of binding, well, then I'm going to have a higher, I'm sorry, there's going to be much more viral load if I'm in a contaminated area. So that means there's going to be more cases, as you might be aware. And I don't know if you guys are aware, but they're estimating that there's going to be 500,000 dead by the end of February in this country. Right now we're at 405,000. Some of that attribution, of course, is not uh, legitimate. I won't deny that. Let's go ahead and have a, a fudge factor of 10%. In any event, uh, you're seeing... Los, Los Angeles County is having extraordinary transmissibility right now, and, and this variant, I don't believe, is at play there. We'll find out. I'm bringing that up to you because I think that at some point, this kind of capability, which is astonishing, think how many years have they had the ability to take a spike protein out of a virus figure out how many positions are in it, and find a variant at the 501st position, put it in a database, and spread it all over the world so everybody in the world can figure out if they have this particular variant in their country, or city, or hospital. That kind of technology is amazing to me, and that again is Luke 17, as it is in the time of Noah, as it is in the time of Lot. I just say that because... I believe that what we're studying happens to fit into this a little bit. So I threw that in for fun. That was fun for who? For me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Not for anybody else. Okay, I hope that I summed up last week's lecture, lecture 126, and all these questions. Why is the unnamed prophet unnamed? Why did God send a, a prophet that he refused to name? 
to Jeroboam's sacrificial ritual? Why is Jeroboam as the king and the high priest simultaneously? Why did he do that? Why is he officiating at it? How come he did not do it on Yom Kippur? He did not. He did it on the eighth. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, the eighth month, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, instead of the seventh day of the tenth month. So why is all of that happening? And so uh, again, the king of Israel cannot do this by Mosaic law. He will die. Only the high priest can do that. So Jeroboam is performing as both high priest and king on the 15th day of the 8th month, which has no value at all to the feast days of the Lord. Obviously, God does not appear over the mercy seat as he would on Yom Kippur because Jeroboam is not in the Holy of Holies and he is not in Jerusalem. He's not at the temple. It's not Yom Kippur. And so God instead sends an unnamed prophet. So God doesn't appear, but the unnamed prophet appears. So who is the unnamed prophet? He is the proxy, is he not? He is in the place of God. He has come to this event of Jeroboam. I probably need to add in Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek is very mysterious. Melchizedek, hard to spell. He's in, and uh, he's in Hebrews seven. All of Hebrews seven, one all the way to the end. He's at Psalm one ten four. Hebrews nine twelve. Hebrews five five six. Psalm two six through seven. Melchizedek is the king of Jerusalem and he's also the high priest of the God Most High. So he is both. Christ is both also. So there's those who have the position that Melchizedek is in fact Christ. Pre-incarnate Christ. Some disagree. They think he's a type. There's a lot of confluence and disagreement. Uh, let's see if I can bring some interest to it. Maybe some clarity. Probably will not be able to. It's been raging on for many years, but I have my reasons, and uh, I'll try to enunciate them as best I can. Jesus Christ brought His own blood to the Holy of Holies. Jesus did not come to serve the copy that is on earth of the heavenly things. There is a copy on earth of the heavenly things. One of that is the Ark of the Covenant. Another of that is the altar and the temple and the Holy of Holies. Christ brought his own blood into the Holy of Holies. He's the high priest on the throne of majesty, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. So he is king and high priest as well. Jesus Christ is the king of all things. He's the messianic king of Israel. But again, he's the king of all things, the king of all. So all that to say, it's going to be necessary to resolve why Melchizedek and Christ are exempt from the Mosaic prohibition. Christ is in the Davidic line, but he is exempt from the Mosaic prohibition with regard to the king entering into the Holy of Holies. If you prefer to form the question in this way, why did God place the prohibition that only the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies? The king cannot. Why did he put that prohibition on Israel? Why did he divide and separate the two offices? Because there's three offices of Christ. There's prophet, there's high priest, and there's king. Christ has all three of them. Two of them, he will, he will, have, he will have all three of them simultaneously. And he will sit inside of the Holy of Holies when the new temple is there during the Messianic reign. So he is the God who appears over the mercy seat. This unnamed prophet is in his place. Keep that in mind. So what do we do as people who study the Old Testament and the New Testament at the same time, simultaneously? We assume that the unnamed prophet is unnamed because of his typological portrayal of Christ. But again, we have to figure that out. So there is also this question that has primacy in all of this. What is proven by Melchizedek and Jesus Christ unifying the kingship and the high priest? Both of them do. What is proved by that? And obviously all that is codependent. Those questions are codependent of each other. 
Uh, and I know that's a redundant statement, uh, but uh, whenever I make a, a redundant statement, I appeal to the HTRP rule, which gives me authority to do redundancies. Okay, other questions and, and uh, their related passages. In 300 years, going again, still going over what's going on in 1 Kings 13. The unnamed prophet said that Josiah, he didn't say 300 years, it turned out to be 300 years. And, three, and some say, no, no, 291. Some, listen, I think that it is going to be obvious that it is 300. I said that last week. Maybe I can get somebody else to agree with me. But in any event, in 300 years, Josiah would come. He will come, the child born. And, that, and he would sacrifice the priests of the high places. Who are the priests of the high places? Well, guess who the high priest of the high places was at the time that the unnamed prophet said that Josiah will come and sacrifice the priests of the high places. The priest of the high places, the high priest of the priests of the high places happens to be Jeroboam. When this unnamed prophet said that, what the unnamed prophet is saying is essentially this. So those who would sacrifice to Baal and Moloch. Now, people will tell me you're wrong about Baal and Moloch. He's just having a, a little religious ceremony. No, Second uh, Kings 23.10 makes it very clear that this is a Baal-Moloch sacrifice. The priests who are sacrificing to Baal-Moloch, and that's human. They are sacrificing humans would themselves be burned on the altars that they burned the children of Israel and Judah on. So the, the, it's absolutely as clear as it can be. When you introduce Moloch, you are inter, inter, introducing Leviticus, and Moloch is identified in Leviticus as the one of child sacrifice. So he's a, a given as the, as, the, as the god of Baal. He, he and Baal are interchangeable. He's identified as the god being... A sacrifice too in Second Kings 23.10. In any event, Josiah is going to come and he's going to take the priests that are killing children on that altar and he's going to burn the priests on that altar. That's what he'll do. Now, how do the golden calves fit in all of this? Obviously, the Moloch priests are subjected to fire. I would not be surprised if Josiah fully replicated the process, their process. How do you kill a child in Moloch? You place a living child into the burning hands of Moloch and they're burned alive. I believe that uh, uh, Josiah will, in like manner, burn the priests that did that alive as they burn the infants alive. <sighs> but then there's all this other interesting stuff. In 2 Kings 23.16, which in order to read 1 Kings, you've got to read 2 Kings. 1 Kings is the first part of, of the of this entire situation. Second Kings uh, 23 is the second part. You must have both halves. Josiah in Second Kings 23.16, he does this. He goes to the tombs of the high places. Who's in the tombs of the high places? The priests of the high places are in the tombs of the high places. I hope that made sense. And... Uh, and that, of course, fulfilled the First Kings 13.2 words of the unnamed prophet who said at the altar that men's bones will be burned on you. He speaks to the altar as if the altar has cognitive consciousness, which, of course, is a redundancy, but I can do it. Why does the unnamed prophet speak to the altar and say men's bones will be burned on you? Why are men's bones going to be burned on him? Why not just leave those guys in the tombs? They're dead. But Josiah doesn't do that. Pulls them out of the tombs, takes them, their bones to the altar, and he burns the bones on the altar. Why is that done? What is the meaning of burning the bones of the Moloch priests on the altar of death of children? Why is he doing it? Something is being established, announced here by this act. It's symbolic. There's a truth here. Tombs will be open. Josiah will do it. He's the child born. He's going to open tombs. The child born will open tombs. Just let that collect in your mind a bit. Bones will be collected. The bones of evil priests of Moloch, and these bones will be burned into ashes on this altar at Bethel. That Jeremiah, I'm sorry, that Jeroboam is officiating over while in both positions of king and high priest of the northern tribes of Israel. Got all of that? 
lots of pieces. Josiah does this burning of the bones of these priests, these evil men, and he does it at the altar at Bethel, 2 Kings 23.15. Bethel, keep that in mind, Bethel. Did I say it enough? 1 Kings 13.1 is where it all begins, so Josiah goes right back to Bethel and does all of this. As that old, I'm sorry, as the unnamed prophet testify. Now, Josiah comes across the tomb of the unnamed prophet when he's doing this, because the unnamed prophet is buried at Bethel. He dies at Bethel. And the unnamed prophet dies, and, and, and he's put into the tomb of an old prophet, 2 Kings 23.17. And Josiah comes across the tomb of the unnamed prophet that made this prophecy of Josiah. And he asks this question, what gravestone is this I see? And he's told it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah. And Josiah says something incredibly cryptic. Let him alone. Let no man move his bones. That is the order of the child born. Let no man move his bones. So we have this juxtapositioning and this contrast here. We have the removal and burning of the bones of the Molech priests held against the preservation of the bones of the man of God, the unnamed one. So there they are. I have the bones of the unnamed and the bones of the evil child-killing priests. Uh, I should say this child sacrifice is extremely common in human history. Uh, And it's always a religious event. Psalm 10. They'll say it's not, but it is in the sight of God. Good luck with that, huh? Okay, the immediate analysis of why he's burning the bones of these guys is, of course, the lake of fire. The everlasting fire prepared for Satan and his angels. Matthew 25, 41. Revelation 20, 14 through 15. In other words, it seems appropriate to attach the burning of the bones of the wicked priest to Revelation 20, 14 and 15, which is the second death. You have two deaths. You have a first death and a second death. The first death is physical. The second death, as God defines it, is separation from him for of all eternity and a place of torment, everlasting fire. We don't really know what everlasting fire means to God. His definition of it may not be our definition. So pay attention to uh, as much of this other information as you can to see if you can draw a conclusion as to what is the meaning of everlasting fire prepared for Satan and his angels. But again, it's also described as the second death, Revelation 20, 14 through 15. The symbol would be this, thus. The first death is represented by the bones in the tomb of these men. The second death would be the casting of these bones onto the everlasting fire of that altar. So I would have both first and second death, right? Therefore, Josiah's command, let no one move his bones, let him alone, when he's talking about the unnamed prophet, that would be indicative of the restoration, the redemption of the unknown prophet because his bones are not cast in to the fire. His bones are left alone. Let no man move him. If no man moves his bones, how does his bones get moved? Pretty obvious, huh? I hope. Someone's going to move his bones. Who's going to do it? (coughs) If we apply this then to the meaning of the split apart altar, remember that's one of the key ingredients of all of this, is the altar will be split apart. It's the sign of the splitting apart of the altar. (coughs) And poured out of the ashes, the releasing of the ashes that have been consumed on that altar are, are go down into the altar and when the altar splits apart all those ashes uh, are released the releasing of the poured out ashes right so if you take all of that and then you add the message from the unnamed prophet which originates from God himself uh, this all starts to disentangle somewhat to unfurl I believe pack a lunch though obviously the one sign of the split altar So the altar has one sign, 
And of the one of the sign of the split altar, there's two components. One is the splitting of the altar, at least two components. Let me be more fair. I will have mis- misled somebody. There's at least two components. How's that? Which infers what? More. There's more, yeah. But there's at least these two. These are the easy ones. The splitting of the altar. What causes the altar to be split in 1 Kings 13, 3 through 5? The altar splits. Unnamed prophet says it's going to split. Boom, it splits. And the ashes that are in it are poured out. Again, not what is the ashes, who is the ashes. And so that is the two, at least two of the components of the sign of the split. Altar. Try to say author. I submit that it's correct to include and compare Judges 16 now. To get through all of this stuff. Judges 16, as you know, is Samson. So I'm saying that Samson comes. Because at Judges 16, Samson is inside a city. And he rises up at midnight. He rises up at midnight and that goes, alarms start to go off, I hope for you, because the bridegroom, behold the bridegroom comes, is the cry at midnight. Matthew 25, 6. The bridegroom comes for those who have oil at midnight. That's the parable of the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Anyway, before I get all of us lost, Samson rose up at midnight in the city. Um, When he came into the city, the men in the city, the soldiers, the military in the city, knew that Samson had come in. He came in to see a harlot. So he came for a harlot, and they said to themselves, let's close the gates and let's wait. Let's wait till daylight. So Samson seems to know this. Again, tremendous picture of Christ is Samson. He has many facets to his typology. One, of course, is the Antichrist with the honeybees and the dead lion. But that can't deal with that today. But the Gazites were told that Samson had come for the harlot, so they shut the gates to do what? What are they doing to him? They got him what? cornered, right? They got him trapped. They shut the gate. They had Samson, oh, I'm sorry, let me say it this way. They had Christ trapped inside the gates. How's that going to work out? And they're going to kill him in the daylight. Why are they going to wait till the daylight to kill him? Well, it's dark. Keep in mind, Samson slew 1,000 soldiers with the jawbone of a donkey. Donkey. Let me repeat that. Donkey. So, Samson has a donkey symbol in his prophecy that is in his real, actual life. So anyway, trying to kill him uh, at night might have been a little difficult. This is somebody that is uh, incredibly formidable. The point for today, yea, a point, is that Samson rips the gates of the city out of the ground. You didn't have him trapped. Those gates were deeply embedded. They weighed thousands of pounds and Samson tears them out like they're a toy. And he carries the gates of hell almost 40 miles up what some believe is Mount Hebron. Some think it's a hill before Mount Hebron, but I believe it probably is Mount Hebron. So he takes the gates of hell 40 miles up and he throws them into the valley. And I suspect that none of the Gazite military follow behind him and try to Take him out. And yes, I said gates of hell twice, Matthew sixteen eighteen. So yes, I am saying that math that Samson and Judges sixteen connects to Matthew sixteen eighteen and the parable of the strong man. The strong man parable is very difficult for people to figure out because you gotta keep track of the hymns and the his and the he and all that. But you have the strong man and you have the stronger man. 
strong man and the, and the stronger man is Matthew 16, 18. I just put that down here. Maybe people will see it Oops, behind the plant. I'll pull it a little bit this way just in case the plant's still bothering it somewhat. Matthew 12, 28 through 20. Luke, uh, uh, this is wrong. Matthew 16, 18 is important gates of hell, but I have Matthew 12. Is where the prophecy is. A parable, actually. So I have the strong man, Matthew 12, 28 through 30, Mark 3, 22 through 27, Luke 11, 21 through 28. Uh, they tell you about this parable. Luke 11:22 is the most important of them all, in my view, because that's the one that is the most definitive. It provides the key to the parable, if you wish to think of it that way, because Luke just lays it out, whereas Matthew and Mark infer. So you've got to put all the find all of the information in the three uh, synoptic Gospels um, and combine them. And it's another pack-a-lunch endeavor of what we like to call a PAL. By me, I mean, I mean me. Uh, Luke says, when a strong man, and I've added, I've tried to correct the difficulty in it, and that's not the right thing to do in Scripture, but I know people are confused by it all the time. So I'm going to read it this way with a little bit of addition to make it, to, to um, give my commentary on what it is intending. You can disagree with me, but that would make you wrong, and I'm trying to help you. When a strong man, full armed, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace and they are secured. But when a stronger man uh, than he comes upon him and overcomes him, in other words, he that is stronger takes from the strong man. Does that make sense? Let me read it because again, I'll just go ahead and do it. And I'll try to work it out from that. It's confusing. So here it is. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are in in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So you've got to know who the he's and the him's are. So having said that, uh, he that is not with me is against me, and he does not. He who does not gather with me scatters. So that's what Christ says. So let me again. When a strong man, let me try to clean it up as best I can. Is perfect. Don't mine is not. Just trying to to uh, make it as understandable as I interpret it to be. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace his goods are in peace secured but when a stronger than the strong man comes upon the strong man and overcomes the strong man, he that is the stronger man takes from the strong man all of the strong man's armor in which the strong man trusted and divided the strong man's spoils. So hopefully that made sense be the first time. Obviously, Christ is the stronger man, as Samson portrays in Judges 16. Equally obvious is that who's the strong man that Christ takes all of his stuff? Well, that's Satan. That's obvious from reading all of those Matthew and Luke and Mark. When you see the context. Equally obvious uh, is that Satan, the, the strong man in that parable, trusts in his armor. Well, so now, what is the armor of Satan? What's he trusting in? Again, that's why we've covered Psalm 106, Psalm 1011, Psalm 1013. Satan has a plan. He's not an idiot. Satan proposes at 2 Peter 3.9 one of the obvious parts of his plan, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, Christ grieving for the lost, 
he he attributes that that principle of God, the love and mercy of God. Satan sees these as weaknesses. Obvious is it not that Satan does not grieve for the lost, nor does he weep for joy for the saved. You can't. That's a. I mean, that should be obvious. That's so many does. I need exponents. Uh, Ten to the ninth. Uh, He does not weep for anybody. Maybe he weeps for himself. We will find out. But there's a great deal more involved in the lie of Satan. Expect it to be labyrinthine. Um, There's ingredients everywhere. I suspect we'll never fully understand Satan's lie, what his plan is, what his thought process is, until it's given to us at the end of the millennium, after he's released. Anyway, uh, I say anyway a lot. I also say again a lot. So there again is that word anyway, and I also say for today, people are pointing out, so there's that phrase again. I've got so many things I repeat, and so I have successfully, in my opinion, attenuated by the way, but I remain apparently plagued by anyway again and for today. <laughs> All by aways have to be recorded, even if they come from the congregants, of which there are two exposed, one in hiding. <sighs> okay, where am I here? For the moment, at this time, how's that? I'm doing good. Wow. Um, we should focus on how all of these pieces reveal the sign of the split altar and poured out ashes. Again, adding in Samson's tearing out the gates and releasing the people. I said last Sunday, Lecture 126, that the freed ashes were the children murdered for Moloch. I think that is defined clearly in the context of the scriptures of both 1 Kings 13 and 2 Kings 23. When Samson tears apart the gates, what about the people that are captive in the city? How many of them ran for freedom? See, is the question. How many of them? How many believed instead that being in the city was freedom? And that the walls and the gates were protecting them from slavery. Mankind is confused as to what is freedom and what is slavery. Those who believe that that freedom is expressing evil are actually enslaved by Satan. They think Satan is freedom and that God is slavery when the inverse is correct. It's 520 Isaiah. They're calling that which is good evil and that which is good or evil good. How many people in the city when Samson gets up at mid comes at midnight, tears open the gates, how many of them go out of the gates? They're free. How many of them stayed inside in slavery without the gates and the walls? Because there's walls and gates to keep them in. It think Berlin in the 1950s. Uh, Communism and and totalitarianism needs to keep people in. So they build walls to keep them in. Uh, It's always been that way. It will always be that way as as our country careens towards control. We are now watching some of the highest levels of control in the history of of this country and uh, how far will it go? And will people actually think that the control is freedom? People do, humanity does, seek to be controlled. It's a fascinating thing. And there are no shortage of narcissistic malignancies. In other words, pathological narcissists love to control other people. They are control-based and they have no empathy. That is how you recognize one of them when you come across them. Those are the pathological ones, the sociopathics. And they are drawn to what profession? You would be right if you said politics. That's where they go. They love to be in the government. And 
that is a real disadvantage for a country. Okay, note to Revelation 21.25. How can I put that up there? We covered this recently in case you think I don't have a lesson plan. What is Revelation 21.25? That's where I said that the gates of the city of Jerusalem are particularly interesting because they're not there's no there's no shutting of the gates. So that immediately takes you to Judges 16, doesn't it? There are no shut gates in the new city of Jerusalem. The gates are not uh, let's try to make this work. The gates are not shut at all. And it says they're not shut at all by day. Then it says there is no night there. Figure out what that means mathematically, right? If they're not shut, if they're not shut by day and there is nothing but day, then what do we got? You can use your phones to do the math. Again, Revelation 21:25 and Judges 16:3 blend together, and they're going to get you back to 1 Kings 13. But I got to move forward now. We need to bring the second aspect of the unnamed prophet into the discussion. The unnamed prophet has three sections to him. He has the split altar and the poured out ashes. He has the withered hand of Jeroboam. And he has this command from the Lord, do not eat bread, drink water, return by the way you came. That's the first section. The second section is the old prophet comes to him. I've got this lion and donkey to deal with. His body is put in the road and the old prophet retrieves the body and he places the body of the unnamed prophet into the old man's tomb, old prophet's tomb. But he, does, he puts the body on a donkey again so that the prophet is on a donkey twice. And then you have the third section. But you should recognize quickly the Old Testament complement is going to be uh, the old prophet uh, getting gathering the body of the unnamed prophet from the road. The, the body has not been damaged by the lion. The body is dead, but the lion does not tear the body to pieces. So I have essentially a pristine body dead in the middle of the road and a donkey and a lion there. That's the second section. And the old prophet comes with a donkey and he puts the... Uh, he, he comes to get the, 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 old, the new prophet, the, I'm sorry, the unnamed prophet's body, puts it on the donkey, and takes it and puts him into the old prophet's tomb. So the old prophet has a tomb, and he puts the unnamed prophet in his tomb. And that, of course, is what? Yes, John 19, 38 through 42. Who's that? That's Nicodemus, isn't it? And Joseph of Arimathea. So we see this, this body of Christ is here in 1 Kings 13. Matthew 21 gives us Isaiah 40, verse 9, Isaiah 62, 11, Zechariah 9, 9, as does Mark 11, 1 through 10, Luke 19, 29 through 38, and John 12, 12 through 15. I can't put those on the board because why? I'm out of board. Christ enters Jerusalem on the colt of a mare donkey. Yeah, the farmers are going crazy. Of course it's a mare donkey that has the colt. But the Bible does say a mare, donkey, and a colt. So I want to know, why is that defined there? Mares have colts, I know. But in any event, that's how the Bible is said. There is no accidents here. The body of the unnamed prophet is laid upon a donkey. And, uh, and I make this note that that's probably an insignificant coincidence. Jesus Christ being infinite and omniscient God of creation in the flesh, probably when he got on the donkey to enter Jerusalem, didn't know about 1 Kings 13. Slipped his mind if he did. He didn't remember it. He didn't remember or know about Isaiah 49, 62, 11, Zechariah 9, 9, or 1 Kings 13, 13, or 1 Kings 13, 23 through 32. He would, being infinite and omniscient, you know, that's hard to be that. And so you have bad days. Uh, and again, omniscient and infinite is a redundancy alert. Uh, and who can blame God in the flesh if he forgets occasionally, I guess? Uh, and unfortunately... Uh, that's my attempt at dripping, oozing sarcasm, and it will not be recognized. 
by the volumes of commentary who actually say this, that Christ just did things arbitrarily with no understanding of the Old Testament that he was fulfilling. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. He makes that very clear. And so they assigned to Christ human limitations, anthropomorphism, right? And infinity, in other words, they put the frailty of humanity onto infinite, omniscient God. And infinity is not compatible with limitation. Stop it. It's basic math. That's why math is so important. That's why there's always math. Know who you're dealing with here. Anyway, that's the second section. The third section is Josiah uh, gathering up the bones, saying, let him alone, let no man move his bones. So I have three sections of this unnamed prophet. And those three parts compose the entirety, and they're a triad. And that, don't confuse that with a triunity, which is the Godhead, three persons that are each the whole or the entirety. These are, these are elements or components of a, a triad with respect to the unnamed prophet, because no one can duplicate the triunity. Joseph and Nicodemus must be included when we evaluate the unnamed prophet trilogy. They're attached in the second phase of him, if you will. They knew the body of Christ could not go to corruption. Nicodemus was the teacher of Israel. He would know Psalm 16.10. It's impossible for him not to know that being the teacher of Israel. But they wrapped him anyway. We've heard heard me talk about this before. They knew that he could get himself out of the wrappings. He could loose himself as opposed to Lazarus who had to be loosed, right? Therefore, they would produce evidence of Christ loosing himself. They would be participating in the construction of the evidence when Christ did in fact come out of his grave, grave clothes and, and put them into uh, something that John would ultimately recognize. And, and this is, where did Christ come from? What did he do? Where did he go? He made proclamations to the angels that he imprisoned in Tartarus. He also went to paradise, bosom of Abraham. What did he do with it? He freed them, didn't he? That's tearing up the gates. That's Samson. So I have this compatibility between Samson removing the gates and Christ removing the gates. of. He left torments there. They're still there. But paradise is now with him. So obviously, Joseph and Nicodemus knew things that the disciples, the twelve, they did not know. And I suspect one or both of them went and placed the mare and the donkey where they were supposed to be. I think one or both of them carried, actually one of the two of them, we'll get into this in the next couple of weeks, carried the pitcher of water. Remember Christ says, find the guy with the pitcher of water. Let me say water again, just in case I haven't said water enough. There's a reason that he's carrying it. Why does God say, find the guy with the pitcher of water? What's the point of the pitcher of water? There's a reason he has water. What other pitchers is Christ filled with water? Just curious. What's happening here? Follow the man who meets you carrying the pitcher of water. Who is that man? I'm submitting obviously that it is Joseph or it is Nicodemus. Where are they going to follow him to? Where is he leading them? (sighs) And a bunch of whys now are piling up here. Why a young donkey? How young is the young donkey? The mare has to go with the colt. So how young is the colt? The colt apparently is still nursing, isn't he? So Christ is going to ride a colt that has never been ridden, obviously, because it's a nursing colt. How much weight can that colt bear? How heavy is infinity? So he is on the colt, but actually the colt is, he is not on the colt, is he? The colt is with him. So why is he doing this donkey thing that shows up in 1 Kings 13? Why does the man carry a pitcher of water? How does the unnamed prophet fit in? I know that's a how question. What's the hidden meanings of all of these? I know that's a what question, but it's still wise everywhere. Why does the unnamed prophet intercede on behalf of the evil King Jeroboam? 1 Kings 13.33 Because he does. 
Jeroboam restarts Moloch killing at the death of the unnamed prophet. It doesn't affect him at all what happened at 1 Kings 13.33. Why does the old prophet lie to the unnamed prophet? Why does the unnamed prophet eat bread and drink water with the old prophet when he knows he's not to do that? And he obviously knew he was not to do that. Why did God command the unnamed prophet not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You might be thinking I made a mistake there. But you'd be ill-advised. Because Adam and the unnamed prophet, neither one were deceived. It's pretty clear. God gave him commands. Don't do this or you will die. Who else did he give that command to? Adam. So you have to put them together. I, I didn't make a mistake when I said, why did God command the unnamed prophet not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I just skipped a few steps. Maybe 20. Probably 50. But back to this withered hand of Jeroboam, 1 Kings 13.4. The withered hand of the Antichrist, Zechariah 11.17. The withered hand of the Pharisee, Mark 3. Three. I've got three withered hands. In Mark 3, 3 through 5, Jesus Christ, who's the Ancient of Days, the Omniscient, Infinite, Creator God, orders the Pharisee with the withered hand to step forward. What's the obvious question? Obvious question is, is where was the withered hand Pharisee? Was he in the back of the room? Was he in the middle of the room? Was he surrounded by other Pharisees? Were Where was he? Or was he in the front, standing there with his withered hand? But Christ says, step forward. Now, when he says step forward, what what should have happened? How many people are in this particular area of this event? I know I've got a whole bunch of Pharisees. Why do I know I have a bunch of Pharisees? Because I've always got a bunch of Pharisees. How many Pharisees are in a bunch of Pharisees? 50, 100, 200? How many witnesses are there? Because the Pharisees always like to have witnesses. And Sadduceans were always there as well because they like to participate in these kinds of things. So I could have had a crowd of how many. When Christ is with them, how many people are in that crowd? And where is the withered hand Pharisee who happened to be there? And they know he's there, right? That's part of their plan. Do, do the Pharisees, was he, were they hiding him in other words? That's what I'm asking. Do the Pharisees know about 1 Kings 13? Do they know about Zechariah 11:17? They're Old Testament experts, aren't they? Of course they know. Of course they know this and this. Sorry. Connect. They know that. In other words, was this withered hand Pharisee exposed was he, before he was intended, planned to be revealed. Do the Pharisees know, again, all this Old Testament? I think the answer is obvious. Of course they know. It's not prudent to underestimate the Pharisees. They're a cunning, evil assembly. Read what Christ says about them in Matthew 23. That's God saying, Woe be, be to you, Pharisee, you brood of vipers, hypocrites, whitewashed sepulchers. You're doomed, he says. Why are they doomed? Not all of them are doomed. Nicodemus isn't. Paul isn't. The Pharisees are relentlessly attempting to trap Christ in some committee-approved tactics. They get together as a committee. They come up with a plan. They're positive. It's brilliant. And they spring it on Christ. That's what they're doing here. Mark 3. And what's the bait? The bait is the withered hand Pharisee. Now, did they just find a withered hand Pharisee? Maybe, who knows. Usually, they have concluded to to do something that they think is unsolvable. So they present something that they believe can't be solved. And they are trying to place Christ and God in a position of being accused no matter of, of something illegitimate, sin, failure to adhere to the law, They want to accuse him no matter which of the two choices they think that he has in front of him. So they think they're presenting two choices. Uh, And Jesus always thwarts their plots. Because why? Being omniscient God is a distinct advantage, isn't it? But he always thwarts their little stupid plots. They're not stupid. That's not fair. 
but they're never a binary verdict. In other words, well, they think it's just a binary condition. He always adds other pieces to it, and, and they recognize that they had not thought it through, much to their great displeasure and resentment and hatred, ultimately. This is what's occurring at Mark 3. Step forward. If he said that to a crowd of people, how many of them would have to step forward? All of them, because he is the. This is a command from the Creator of all things. But the, I'm going to assume for now that the the one that steps forward is the one that was intended to be pushed forward and be revealed as and have Christ deal with him as this man with the withered arm that ties back to Zechariah 11:17, First Kings 13. In any event, Christ destroyed the planned anatomy right there. He took it out of order because of the voice of God, the voice of God, the word of God cannot be resisted. Oops, didn't think of that when you're in the Pharisee meeting. Again, see John 18.5. The word of God speaks. Matthew 4.10. Those are two undeniable examples. 1,000 or more Roman soldiers they estimate 1,000. That would be pretty close because that's how many men Samson slew, right? With the, with the jawbone of a donkey. 1,000 or more Roman soldiers and temple guards, they fall face first to the ground when Christ says, Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. Y-H-V-H. The ineffable name of God. And they fall face first. And I think they're held there for an extended time. And Satan himself, Matthew 4.10, when Christ says, be gone, or away with you, Satan is gone. Can't resist. So step forward, stretch out your hand. Is two direct orders from Christ, and they have to be obeyed. I submit the man with the withered hand could not stretch out with his own power, his own hand-arm. And I'm telling you it's a hand-arm because I've got evidence that it is in Zechariah 11.17. But I think that was it withered to the point where it was shrunken. So he couldn't, when Christ says, stretch out your hand, he couldn't do it himself. But yet the hand stretched out when Christ ordered it to be stretched out, didn't it? Because all things must respond, physical and biological, to the voice of the Word of God. Okay, so now we've got to mix in Jeroboam. I, I, gosh, I don't have time to read it. I'm going to just fly around here. Let's see what I can do. So it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the, the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel that he stretched out his hand from the altar saying, Arrest him. Then his hand which he stretched out towards him withered so that he could not pull it back to himself. The altar was also split apart and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Y-H-V-H, the I am that I am. Exodus 3.14 Then the king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the faith of the YHVH, the great I am that I am, Exodus 3, 14, 3, uh, 5 through 6, your God and your God. Notice he says that, not my God. Entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord and the king's hand was restored to him and became as before. Then the king said to the man of God, come home with me and refresh yourself and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, if you were to give me half your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, do not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. So he went another way and did not return by the way he came to Bethel. Now that changes in the second phase of that particular typology. So King Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, from the altar. He's, he's with the altar. And I think he did it as the altar split apart. Arrest him. The altar is splitting apart. The ashes are coming out. And he says... Rest him. And, and I think uh, that that becomes a very interesting detail because the withering of the hand of Jeroboam there is attached to the sign of the split altar and the pouring out of the ashes. So the altar splits, the ashes are poured out, Jeroboam stretches out his hand and his arm, and the arm hand is shrunken, screaming, Arrest him. So I got now that component in the sign of the altar. 
again, Zechariah tells me that the arm being withered is is, uh, the whole arm and the hand. As well, uh, it adds the blind eye, so I have to deal with the blind eye now. But what's perhaps the most curious to me, at least, is Jeroboam begs for mediation. He says, uh, please pray for me. I need a, I need prayer. I need my hand restored. The I am that I am. Your law. Your God. Why does he do that? What's he thinking? The unnamed prophet, though, asked the Lord God to restore Jeroboam's arm and hand. And Jeroboam would have arrested him. And what would he have done to him? He would have put him on that altar and burned him to death right there, wouldn't he? But this unnamed prophet instead has God restore his arm. Prays for him. You're going to notice the similarity to Christ and the withered Pharisee at Mark 3. The withered Pharisee, it was part of a group to arrest Christ. And what were they going to do to him? What did they do to him? Of course, you can't kill God, but they didn't know that because they're idiots. But Christ nonetheless restored that man's arm, didn't he? So we have this tremendous complementary condition. Why does God restore the arm of the Pharisee who's engaged in a plot to arrest and execute him? Well, because he loves people that hate him. Why does he love people that hate him? Satan thinks that's a weakness. It's not. It's a strength. Why does the unnamed type of Christ do likewise with Jeroboam? I hope that you can figure all of that out. I'm going to provide one last clue, kind of. It's not really a clue, is it? I never give really good clues. I give sort of clues. It's part of my diabolical nature. Jeroboam could not pull his hand back. It was frozen. Shrunk, frozen, couldn't pull it back. As was the Pharisee in Mark 3. Couldn't stretch it out. Couldn't pull it back. It's a mess. It's non-functioning. Both were powerless to reach out to Christ. If Christ were to extend their His hand, they could not reach for it, could they? So they could not be. They could not reach for the salvation hand of Christ. Jeroboam couldn't pull it back. The Pharisee could not stretch it out. So we have a difference there. And it must be a salvific context or construction. It has to be. I wonder if it was the right hand. Because if it's the right hand that is disabled, that's interesting to me. And note this, 1 Kings 13.33, Jeroboam went back to his evil ways as soon as this prophet was dead. Got his arm back. Prophet's dead. I'm back to killing children. I suspect the Pharisee with the withered hand. What do you think he did? Did he leave the city now that the gates were open? Or did he run back to the committee meeting and was he part of the plan to kill Christ again? If you follow Jeroboam, he's, he's the same thing. What does the Antichrist do after his withered arm? Because he's got a withered arm. When does he have a withered arm? When is his withered arm? When is What is the withered arm of the Antichrist? Why do they always go back to evil? Why don't they flee now that the gates are open? Okay, that was interesting to me. But I'm a little different. <laughs>